The theme of 2016, ASN's 50th anniversary year, is the past, present, and future of nephrology. In this spirit, ASN Executive Vice President Todd Ibrahim speaks with Dr. Garabed Eknoyan and Dr. Stephen Peitzman, who are both not only nephrologists, but experts in the history of medicine. Together, they discuss the evolution of the field of nephrology from ancient times through the modern era. Dr. Eknoyan, when was the kidney as an organ first recognized? Way back by the Babylonians in 2000 BC or thereabouts, and they looked at the kidney in predicting the future just like they did with the liver. However, they never paid attention to its function. The people who first gave some thought of where the urine comes from were the Egyptians, whose concept was urine with everything else was formed in the blood and the heart pumped it into the bladder. The person who put the kidney as the organ that makes urine is Galen in 100 and 200 in the modern era. He is the, one of the most famous Greek physicians who went through a whole series of experiments ligating the two ureters and showing that no urine comes out of the bladder and cutting the ureters and showing that the urine collects in the abdomen and does not come out of the bladders. I agree with Dr. Eknoyan entirely, and I just learned something. In the Jewish High Holiday Liturgy, there's a certain passage. It says something about consulting with your kidneys. So apparently the ancient Jews also had some sense of the kidneys, not necessarily knowing that they made urine, but owning some kind of uh, mystical power. And my understanding about Galen is that once he had figured out that it is the kidneys that make the urine, and by the way, he did so in animals. Apparently, he went around and he, he made that experiment as a demonstration, which he used both to teach physiology, as we would say, and also to amplify his own importance. He was quite fond of himself and, and quite a self-promoter. So in Greek mythology, the Prometheus myth focuses on the liver, and, and part of his punishment is having his liver picked out each day and then it grows back during the night. Are there myths in antiquity that relate to the kidney that are similar to the Prometheus myth in, in the liver? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I think the reason they picked up on his liver is related to the fact that, including Galen, everybody thought that one of the most vital organs in the body was the liver where the blood is formed. And if I may add here also to what Steve mentioned, there is considerable mention of the kidneys in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, where Moses was told which organs he should burn from which animals in making the offering, the kidney was one of the principal organs, and the kidney was supposed to be burned with all the fat around it, and the reason for that apparently was the smoke that it generates. And the more smoke the organ being offered to God, the more valuable that organ was. And that's where the kidney got its fame in the Bible. I'm fascinated. And Dr. Preisman, I don't know if you want to add that I'm just struck that it sounds like in antiquity, the kidney was really affiliated both with mysticism and with the soul. Is that a fair takeaway from this conversation? Mysticism? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. And so, you know, as an organ, the concept of function began to enter. In Greek medicine, 
all the prior medicine before centered around observing, making a diagnosis, and being able to offer a treatment. So if we can just relate the function of the organs to common diseases. So as we look at this period, what were some of the diseases that were starting to be recognized by the scientists and the doctors at the time? Well, you know, that's a very interesting thing because what they began to look at remained what people looked as diseases of the kidney for ages. Essentially, it derived from observing urine flow and also from the pain associated with kidney disease. And in terms of the urine flow, the two things that surfaced, one was too much urine, and that's what we generally now associate with diabetes or insipitus or diabetes mellitus, but none of this were spelled out, obviously, at the time. But increased urine flow was one of the things they talked about. The second was obstruction, and from the beginning, way back in Babylonian and Egyptian all the way to Greek medicine, obstruction became the big disease of the kidneys, whereby it was attributed to stones, whether in the bladder or in the kidney. And the third disease that people talk about in antiquity and remain throughout most of medicine was that associated with inflammation. And that they attributed to pain in the back of the region of the kidney. They called that inflammation. They all considered the kidney as not as a rare source of disease because it was a solid organ. It had a capsule and was bound, and therefore there was infection and inflammation could not get into an organ that was solidly bound, and there could be no exudation in it. And therefore, the pain was attributed to inflammation because ultimately it was associated with abscess formation that drained to the outside. So by the time Hippocrates and Gallen began putting things together, that inflammation began to be associated with what we would call now infection or pyelonephritis. Those three simple diseases persisted throughout the history of medicine all the way, if I may trespass, Steve, to Richard Bright, who wrote a textbook of medicine at least 12 years after he described his kidney disease together with Thomas Addison, who describes Addison's disease. And he has the chapter on the kidney diseases, and he devotes most of it to obstruction due to stones and to inflammation that he calls nephritis. And he doesn't get into his description of proteinuria and considers obstruction the major disease. That's very interesting. Just to add a few comments, I think one of the difficulties is knowing more about the diseases of the kidney in antiquity or even into the Middle Ages beyond exactly what Gary has mentioned, uh, the unusual disorders then unusual probably, of too much urine obstruction from bladder or kidney stones. Beyond that, it's hard to know for one reason being that we really don't know what diseases that now exist existed at that time. For example, we have no idea whatsoever if membranous nephropathy was a disease in 200 B.C. We can trace and understand that gout was certainly there, 
and that malaria was present because those patterns of disease are so distinctive that they can be recognized in the Hippocratic case reports and other early literature. And we know that those diseases, gout and malaria, can be associated with kidney diseases, but we certainly don't know whether that occurred or what the other kidney diseases were in ancient times. I'd also mention, with Richard Bright drawn into the conversation, of course, he began studying patients who swelled up with what he called dropsy, what we call edema, or yeah. anasarca, and noted that some but not all of such patients had coagulable urine, albumin in the urine. And then at a time in the early 1800s when programmatically physicians in the major, we would say, research and teaching hospitals of Europe were doing many, many, many autopsies to try to correlate clinical findings in the patient with what disease seemed to be disturbed deeper in the body. So dropsy, however, is a symptom that's very visible and very much described going back to ancient times and can, of course, occur with various sorts of kidney disease. But we, again, don't know which patients with dropsy in earlier times may have had kidney disease, which may have had heart disease. Also, the kidneys are rather small and kind of tucked in there behind other organs protected by the rib cage. So one could imagine it was difficult to learn very much about them in relation to disease or even in relation to health. The liver is a huge organ. If it grows large, it can be seen occasionally. It can be felt. And ancient physicians probably did palpate the abdomen from time to time. The heart can make itself known by the pulse and the beating on the chest. But the kidneys, other than making urine, are usually very silent. So it took a long time before rational understanding of kidney physiology and kidney disease occurred. So when was that? I mean, what was sort of the seminal moment in terms of really studying the structure of the kidney and understanding its function? Well, again, I would say, along with Dr. Ekdoyan, very much England, Richard Bright, and William Bowman in the early 19th century. Of course, Vesalius dissected bodies, and he drew the kidneys, and Eustachio was actually a much better anatomist in terms of the kidneys. So the structure was beginning to be worked out in the 1500s, 1600s, and by others, I'm sure. But I think there's a real breaking point with the early 19th century, not thinking as we do entirely, but getting rather close and so using this primordial laboratory finding, one might say, protein in the urine, albumin in the urine, Bright and others began to categorize edematous patients into classifications comprising the kidney, the heart, the liver, as this knowledge grew. Meanwhile, William Bowman, a very, very fine histologist, was exploring the microanatomy of the kidney, obviously the glomerulus, and through his one landmark publication, which included one beautiful engraving showing wonderful detailed illustrations of the glomeruli of people and dogs and snakes and I don't remember what else, he, from the structure of the glomerulus, began to suggest that it seemed to be built as an apparatus ideally suited to separate water from the blood. And that was, I think, an early beginning of the understanding of how urine is made. The German Karl Ludwig was looking at things pretty much the same way at the same time. So I always say to students when I'm talking about history of medicine, I think if I rounded with Richard Bright at Guy's Hospital, I could probably follow what's going on. It wouldn't seem totally foreign. But before that, any kind of such contact would seem remote. And it took a while from Bowman's illustrations until really the 1920s here in Philadelphia for A.N. Richards and Joseph Wern through the earliest micropuncture studies to come up with an experiment that pretty much confirmed that the glomerulus works as an ultrafilter. 
and really that very much added to the confidence in the understanding of the kidney as making urine primarily by filtration and then with processing by the tubule. The natural follow-up question is, when did the chemical analysis of urine begin and what was that discovery process like? You know, that really began in the Renaissance. And the guy who sort of put the terminology that we still use and was the initiator of the whole thing is a guy called Paracelsus. In fact, he may have even described proteinuria even before Richard Bright did back in the Renaissance in the mid-1500s or so. And what he did is he started boiling the urine and passing it and precipitating it. And he came out with crazy terminology that was the notion of sulfur, which is what comes out in smoke, and mercury, which is what burns, and then the residue, which he called salt. And that was really the beginning of where looking at the functions of the kidney in a way can be traced to because some of his followers in the following century went through the stages of tasting the salt. And one of the first differentiations of urea in the urine came to be identified as something that tastes different from sea salt. And that was the first identification, really, of something that ultimately began to be analyzed and defined as urea. And following in the pathway of what Richard Bright did, a French physiologist by the name of Widal, who is known for having developed the typhoid test, he's the one who came out with the term of azotemia because people before he came up with that term had defined the failure of the kidney as uremia. Essentially, urine was accumulating in the blood. What Widal did is he showed that there are two types of Bright's disease. One was due to chloride retention and was associated with dropsy and the swelling. And the other was what became the uremic kidney, but not all of them were uremic. And so he came up with the term of azotemia. And again, in preparation for that, historically what is important, again from France, were some French experiments where they started taking out the kidney and measuring BUN in the blood. And they showed, obviously, that if you take one kidney out, that the BUN will not go up. And then this urologist who did all those studies in France took serial pieces of the remaining kidney out, and it showed that until you get to a significant reduction in kidney function, the BUN doesn't go up, which is what led Widal to term the term azotemia, Essentially, when the BUN goes up, there is no swelling and there is no uremic symptoms. And then he went on to define everything related to urea and, again, leading to the studies that Steve mentioned of Addis doing his studies. The French had started doing that by calculating how much urea there is in the urine in relation to the blood. And when Addis started doing that, because there was variability with urine flow and everything, what Addis did, he would infuse urea and then measure the urea in the blood and in the urine. And that's the formula that he used for the clearance of urea. The one who clarified all of that and simplified it, Vance Fleck, 
who came out with the term of clearance of uremia is by doing urea, it's by doing many more studies and showing that you didn't need to infuse urea as Addis had done. And Addis is the one who actually developed the formula that ultimately we credit to Van Slyke as the clearance of urea. To add to that, and I'm actually a great fan of Thomas Addis. He was one of the earliest thorough students of the kidney physiology, pathophysiology, taking care of patients, of course, well in the pre-dialysis era. But going back to England in the period of Richard Bright, Bright, having discovered this seemingly new disease, proteinuric or albuminuric renal disease, kind of put together a team to study it. He engaged the interest and the work of some young physicians, some pupils. This is largely forgotten, but one summer he was able to get permission to devote an entire ward of Guy's Hospital just to kidney disease patients, set up a laboratory, had students compile notes on the patients that came in and so forth. But at just at that time, there were several physicians in London, in England, very interested in clinic, what we would call clinical chemistry, individuals like William Prout and John Bostock and George Owen Reese. And these individuals began to actually attempt to measure urea in the blood of some of Bright's patients with various sorts of kidney disease. And they seemed to be able to detect urea in a coarse way, and they reported their findings. But this information really went nowhere, and the reason probably is that the techniques were incredibly tedious and time-consuming, involving abstracting urea out of blood samples, and they had to be large blood samples, which worked because bleeding was a treatment of some of the patients who seemed to have more inflammatory types of kidney disease. So the urea was abstracted with alcohol, I believe, and then washed and then precipitated and weighed. And this was not going to be very useful in the sick patient, and nor could you do it in a reasonably small amount of blood. So again, it wasn't until the early 20th century, with people like Van Slyke looking at him from a different perspective, and Otto Folin, and others who won't go into the details, devised colorimetric and other techniques for measuring urea, as well as glucose, eventually creatinine, using relatively simple techniques and relatively small amounts of blood. So the information about urea accumulating was obviously present, but the ability to know that in a given patient did not occur until, I guess, the 1920s, 1930s, when we talk about it being in regular use and these measurements in regular use. I'm just curious, is what do you think the biggest turning point was in, in the history of the evolution of the kidney and our understanding of the kidney? Really, the understanding of kidney function doesn't begin until sometime in the 17th or 16th century when people started looking at the structure of the kidney more carefully than what people in antiquity had described. And essentially, that's when the tubular structure and the glomerular structure began to emerge, and then people began to putting it together. And it was well into the 19th century before all that began to gel into some clinical sense in the way we understand it today. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. In fact, that was the general movement of science and biology towards attempts to understand organic physiology, the physiology of living beings through mechanics, through forces, through chemistry, through physics. And moving that along back in the 1600s was William Harvey's elucidation of the work of the heart and the nature of circulation. And then, uh, again, I think pretty much the 19th century was the time when basically medicine turned to the laboratory 
and through that began to understand function at first at a macrophysiologic level then into a microphysiologic level. So as we continue this conversation, I'm just curious, what were the treatments for kidney diseases, particularly in antiquity? In antiquity, as medicine began to take some form in Greek medicine, but also built in what was done in Babylonian and Egyptian medicine, the treatment was diet, and if diet did not work, then the treatment were drugs, and the drugs were mostly various herbs. And so far as the kidney is concerned, if all that didn't work, then spa waters or sending people to various sources of warm or mineral water was some of the treatments that were used in Greece, Rome, Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and interestingly, all the way to the beginning of the 20th century. In fact, Osler's textbook of medicine as he describes obstruction due to stones, he advises spa waters and, in fact, specifies certain spas that seem to be better than others. So the treatments that were developed very early empirically of dietary management of things that increased urine flow or dietary regimens that improve kidney pain and spa waters is what really remained well into the early 20th century and certainly way before there was any dialysis or the steroids or anything that we use now came about. So well into the 20th century, really people have been doing the same thing and continue to do it even in this day of steroids, immunosuppression. People still go to spas. People still buy herbal drugs over the counter. I agree with Dr. Agnoyan entirely. And some of the figures we talked about earlier, for example, Thomas Addis, who, by the way, was Scots-born, although most of his career was in the United States at Stanford University's School of Medicine and Hospital. Addis was a great student of nutrition, and his main treatment of the patients with chronic renal disease, as we would call it, was dietetic, particularly a very regulated, low-protein diet. One of the famous patients he treated with this precisely specified low-protein diet was Linus Pauling. And well into the 1920s, 1930s, I think, as Dr. Agnoyan said to this day, diet can remain an important part of the treatment, especially of chronic kidney disease. There were drugs that were looked upon as diuretics before the diuretics that we understand, whether they were or were not, is a little bit hard to know. And in addition to spas, at least in the thinking of Richard Bright and some of the Europeans in the 19th century, kidney disease could relate to a suppression of the skin. There was very interesting ideas about what we now call crosstalk of organs, that the skin, the stomach, the kidneys sympathize with each other in some peculiar ways, and a chill or cold could check the function of the skin, and this sort of tossed some sort of energy or inflammation inward perhaps to the kidneys. So Richard Bright advised patients, if they could afford it, to go to a more temperate climate than England, particularly he suggested some of the British Isles in the Caribbean. And that advice continued in textbooks well into the 20th century. So diet, a few drugs, and going someplace else, a spa or just a warmer place, constituted a good amount of the treatment of what we would consider chronic kidney disease for many, many, many centuries. 
you know, one can elaborate and go into other details, but also in terms of other things that people did is because the pain of the inflammation, they would apply various herbal mixtures and oils over the area of the kidneys and including the heat suction that they applied right over the kidney to relieve the pain, presumably due to infection in that region. Right, and I think they also did localized bleeding with leeches applied over the presumed inflamed area of the kidneys. Yeah. Is there anything that was done, particularly in antiquity, that fell out of favor as a treatment that's now being revisited as a potential solution in modern medicine? Hmm. <laughs> I think uh, once alternative medicine started coming into the picture, people and, and the NIH generated a section on alternative medicine, people have been looking at those things, and there are various agents that they are looking into, the herbals, that were once considered as increasing urine flow, relieving kidney pain, but I know there is some peripheral activity including, incidentally, acupuncture. I'm not familiar with that area. But what really impresses me is what we talked about a little bit earlier, which is the continuity of diet treatment, not central as part of the treatment of most kidney diseases today, more or less adjunctive and to some extent controversial how valuable is a low-protein diet. But diet treatment begins with Hippocrates and antiquity and continues to this day as having a role in many areas of medicine, including nephrology. Dr. Eknoyan, Dr. Peisman, thank you very much for today's discussion. No, you're quite thank welcome. You. It was a pleasure. Thank yeah, you very much, fun. everybody. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.